0: I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to John chapter 21. John, we're going to look at three verses out of it, verses 15 through 17. All right, John chapter 21, we'll begin reading at verse 15, and before we do so, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we need your word. We need to be fed. The truth is found in it, we know, are what the Holy Spirit uses to encourage us as believers and to grow us. And so we're looking to you for that. You've given us very simple means, the reading and the proclaiming of your word. And all around the world, at this very hour and this very day, your people are doing it. So we look to you right here at Hope in this gymnasium here in the small town of Pella, Iowa, to fill each of us with your Holy Spirit and give us what we need spiritually. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, John, uh, chapter 21, and verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So Loved ones of Hope Reformed Church and everyone with us here this morning and listening in, we're in Jesus' resurrection ministry. He's raised from the dead. He's not yet ascended. That will take place shortly. And we've noticed that he's ministered to different people, different people groups even, giving not only his disciples, but us as believers, great instruction for what life in the new covenant is like, how it is he wants his church to function, what it is that he wants us to be doing And in particular, what we notice in these verses is how the Lord wants his church to be functioning. He's already given us sort of the great commission that we go out to the world and how it is we're supposed to, what it is we're supposed to proclaim to the world, indeed, where forgiveness of sins can be found in Jesus. But now he's like turning our attention inside the doors of the church to fellow believers and to what life in the church is like. And before we... uh, uh, look at like a a theme and an outline here i want to draw attention to something which i didn't know where to put it so i thought we'll just throw it in the intro if you flip back in john to john chapter 18 verse 18 where we have the setting of jesus on trial and peter has just been admitted in and john is assumed to be the one who's already in the the court of the high priest we're told the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold they were standing there warming themselves peter was too That same language is used in John 21, 9. When they got out on land, just a few verses before what we read this morning, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread in it. Now, again, John is very subtle, but these are the only two times he uses the the language of charcoal fire, one word. And he's drawing our attention to the first time he uses it, Peter denies Jesus. In the context of the second time John uses that language, Jesus restores Peter after Peter denied him. Again, a not so subtle way of of John to be thinking, hey, Peter, deja vu. (laughs) We've been here before, but this time it's going to be quite a bit different now that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. So I want us to notice in these verses that Jesus teaches us how to serve well in his church. Uh, Number one, there's four personal characteristics needed to serve well in his church. And secondly, there are two tasks for every church to prioritize if we're to do life in his church well. So first, four personal characteristics needed to serve well in his church, and we're deriving these from Jesus' interaction with Peter. And the first one I want to draw attention to is humility. So there's a large backdrop to Jesus' interaction with Peter, and I want to touch on it just briefly. In Matthew 26, and also in John, but in Matthew We're told this, verse 31, Jesus said to his disciples, you will all fall away because of me this night. He made it crystal clear. Peter responded to the Lord saying this, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Did you catch that? They might, not me. No, I'm good. Yep, Lord, what you said about these other guys here, I, I think it'll happen. It could very well happen. That will not be characteristic of me. So Peter, back in Matthew 26, also Mark 14, verse 9, Peter said to Jesus, even though they all fall away, I will not. Peter's made it very clear. That's the backdrop to this. And so the first thing that Jesus has come to deal with in Peter's life, post-resurrection ministry, isn't just his appearance, but now they're on the shore, and Jesus is going to deal with Peter in this way. Peter thought he was stronger than the others, better than the others, more committed than the others. Lord, I'm willing to die for you. Peter was all in, or so he thought, and nothing could divert him from his commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ except a little servant girl. <laughs> not much of a threat there, right? But here's Peter thinking finally of himself. And verse 15 of John 21, Jesus highlights that. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, or said to Peter, Simon, son of John, not do you love me, but do you love me more than these? That is the only time Jesus asked Peter this. The other time is just, do you love me? But he starts there. Why? He wants to Peter to think through what he said before. Not, not, Peter, do you love me right now? He'll get to that two more times. But the first time, Peter, do you love me more than these? Because you said you did. Because you claim that you did. Because you said they may all fall away, but I'm not going to. And so Jesus, it's very subtle, but very to the point. Hey Peter, how much do you love me? Are you still comparing yourself to the other disciples? Are you still elevating yourself above them? And he uses language, which is interesting. Did you notice what Jesus said? Simon, son of John. <laughs> this, remember back in John 1 when Jesus first called Peter, we're told this, Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is Aramaic for rock, which means Peter, and that's Greek for rock. <laughs> So apparently at some point, maybe this went to Peter's head or he forgot what he was made of. And Jesus is recalling his original call and standing at this figure, Jesus asks Peter, Simon, son of John, not Peter, but Simon, son of John, reminding him of where he came from, reminding him of his own weakness. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, if Peter or anyone is going to serve well in the church, is going to serve Jesus well among his church, we need to come to grips with humility and with what we're really made of. Peter actually came to understand this quite well in 1 Peter 5, verse 1, a passage we'll reference later. He said, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Not only did he not just say, hey, I'm a fellow apostle, but I'm actually, I'm a fellow elder. Peter's head was sort of put in check. He came to understand that indeed, yeah, I'm, I'm a servant in the church of God. I'm no better. I'm a fellow among these who are serving. He came to grips with his weakness. He didn't see himself as superior anymore. And it's the case, beloved, with many of us, I suppose, if we check our hearts, that we play this a com- a comparison game in our service to Christ, just like Peter did, and it leads to a lot of downfall and heartache and pain in the church and in our ministries. Let me ask you, as I've been asking myself, how do we view ourselves as a disciple of Christ? Do we view ourselves as better or stronger, more committed or more willing to die for Jesus than other believers? If we do careful with that attitude, because the Lord has a way of purging it out, right? And what comes after pride? The fall. Peter took it. The Lord Jesus is addressing it and helping him through it. The second characteristic, not just humility, if we're gonna serve on the church, but love. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Three times that question. What's Jesus doing? He's not telling Simon, hey, Simon, you need to love me. (laughs) He's asking him the question so that Simon will start to realize, indeed, what is important for serving in the church is love. Not just love in general, but love for Jesus Christ. And I want to deal with here, I'm sure if we've studied this passage in any depth, we had people walk us through and say, hey, the the verbs that Jesus uses, the words Jesus and Peter use for love differ. And some uh, times they use the the word phileo, brotherly love, Philadelphia. Other times they use the word uh, agape, uh, covenant love, uh, a love that's an unconditional love. So if you were reading it in the Greek, the questions would go like this. Simon, do you covenant love me? Yes, you know that I brotherly love you. Second interaction, do you covenant love me? Yes, you know that I brotherly love you. Third interaction, do you brotherly love me? Yes, you know that I brotherly love you. Now, some very respectable exegetes have made much of this and said Jesus finally on the last round accommodates Peter. Peter's saying, Lord, I don't covenant love you. My love isn't that great. I see that now. And so Lord Jesus says, as it were, fair enough. Um, will you brotherly love love me then? And Peter says, yes, that I can do. But John has used both phileo and agape interchangeably. So the beloved disciple is used uh, to uh, the the language of beloved, that's love. Phileo and agape are used there. Also, um, the way the father loves the son, both of those verbs are used in John. And also Jesus is described as loving Lazarus with both phileo and agape love. So What stands out in John is that he can use those two uh, verbs interchangeably, the words for agape, covenant love, and phileo, brotherly love. So that suggests that the distinction is not being drawn here between those two sorts of love. Also, Peter doesn't say, when Jesus asks, do you agape love me? Peter doesn't say, no, but you know that I brotherly love you. Peter doesn't respond that way. He says, yes, you know that I love you. And so with that in mind, I don't think John's trying to highlight a distinction between the love Christ is trying to get at and the love Peter is talking about. What everyone can agree on is this. Jesus makes clear that the one motivation for serving the Lord Jesus Christ is love, or a primary motivation, and it's one that Peter needed to come to terms with. We can have all the gifts, all the charisma, all the talents, and all the abilities, all the abilities, uh, the labels behind our name. All the approval, the popularity, we can have this all, but if we don't have love for Jesus, we're lacking arguably the greatest qualification for service in his church. No matter what it is that we do, we need love for Jesus Christ. In fact, if we don't love Jesus, we could go to 1 Corinthians 13.1 and say, if I speak in the tongues of man and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. That's that's all we are. We're nothing, we're a noisy gong, we're a clanging symbol. If in the midst of all of our serving in the church, we don't love the Lord Jesus. Now, Peter lacked love for Jesus previously. When it came down to it, Peter loved his own skin more than Jesus. Peter loved the approval of men more than he loved Jesus. Peter loved keeping up with the appearances before a servant girl more than he loved Jesus. That's why Jesus is asking him, do you love me? Do you love me now? Have you worked through this? Are you committed to me? Will you die for the sake of my name if you are called to do that? Love for Jesus is the unique qualification for Christian service. If we've ever served the Lord's people, we realize how important it is that we love Jesus more than we love ourselves or other people. Because if we don't love Jesus more, we won't be able to love people well at all. If we don't love Jesus, we'll either use people to fill a void in our life or we'll destroy people as we serve them. But we won't be able to serve them well. And our service to them will actually be a form of control or a form of self-love. Oh, I feel great. They're following my advice. Here's an example. It was a painful one I had to learn. Springfield, Missouri, I served at Victory Trade School in Victory Square. It was a men's homeless shelter. During the first few years here in Springfield, uh, three or f- first three or four years, we brought just shy of about 200 people through the church who were homeless, drug addicted, et cetera. Only two of them stayed. And they actually renounced the faith they professed later on. This forced us in the church to do some heart examination without even trying. Some of us grew cynical. Look how many people we've been trying to help, and nobody believes what a waste of time. They're not thankful. Uh, They just use us. They're only interested in groceries and paying their utility bills and free meals. That was some response. Some got burned out. I was included in this category. I actually had parts of all three. We were justifying ourselves based on helping those trapped in generational poverty rather than trusting in Jesus' finished work and doing it out of love for him. Some of us explained it away. Passages in Scripture were actually reinterpreted to mean that we really don't have a responsibility to love our neighbors and help the poor and those in prison. And people are actually saying, you know what, they're not my neighbors. I mean, passages were quite unbelievably uh, turned around to mean something that Jesus never intended. And what stood out after this as we all kind of collectively looked at our hearts um, and I looked at mine was, yeah, I think I've got elements of all three there. Where was love for Jesus? Because love for Jesus is actually a love that we can figure out and uh, have our priorities straight. And if love for Jesus is there, then we don't grow cynical. We say, Lord, I'm going to serve where I'm able to serve, and the results are yours. Maybe no good fruit before my eyes will be visible, but this is for you, this is for your kingdom. You've just called me to be an obedient servant. And because I love you, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do these things. There are a lot of frustrated believers here, beloved, and I'm sure maybe some of us here today are as well, because we don't love Jesus in our service. We love the praise of men. We're not getting enough of it, so we're frustrated. We serve because we love the feeling of being helpful, so we're actually force-feeding our service upon other people, not seeing clearly that they don't need us to serve them that way, but we just love the feeling of being helpful, and we're frustrated because we don't see the results we would like in the lives of those we're helping, and so We may just stop. Why do you serve? Why do I serve? Jesus called Peter to the mat. It was a hard restoration. And and he's calling us to look at why it is we serve. Do we serve because we love Jesus? Then amen, Mm -hmm. let's go. If we're serving for other reasons, we're going to discover that there's subpar reasons. And it's interesting, Peter's talking, Jesus is talking to Peter about love this side of the cross now. You know, the love of God was in many ways a theoretical love prior to the cross. But now Peter understands what love is. His disciples do, they're coming to clarity and we really get it because we have the entire Bible. So what is this love that Jesus Christ is calling us to? What's the love he's displayed? He's displayed it for us. What is that love? It's an unconditional love, it's a love which will overcome every obstacle in order to have a relationship with somebody. It's a love for enemies. And Beloved, we've been loved by that love. The Lord has loved us this way. It's a love which has no conditions. The love of God toward us is not a love that says, I'll love you if you love me back the same way. Our love always pales in comparison to God's love for us, which is why John could say this is not the definition of love, our love for God. (laughs) It's the definition of love as he loved us and gave himself a propitiation for our sins. God doesn't love us saying, hey, I'll love you if you make it easy. The cross wasn't easy. God doesn't say, I'll love you if you help me out. God loved us when we were still dead in our sins and sinners unable to help. God doesn't say, hey, I'll love you if you ask me politely. God loved us when we were rebels and enemies and God-haters. But that's the love of God toward us. That's what he has done for us. That is an unbelievable love that looks at the objects of love, you and I, and sees nothing beautiful encouraging nothing life-giving nothing that can be revived we're just dead enemies who hate him and he says i love you i'm going to come and take care of your entire problem my son on the cross that is the answer to our relationship that has been displayed for peter to see for us to see and we might say, yeah, love for Jesus, that's hard. Yeah, serving the church, ser- using our gifts for the sake of the church, that's difficult. This is a, this is a big love. I like to love Jesus like that. Yeah, and when it does get difficult, we can take a step back and remember how God loved us. It puts our love in perspective. Love is hard. Love is difficult. A committed love, that's involved. It taxes us. We'll go to bed tired at night. We'll probably go to the grave tired at the end of our life, right? We're worn out because of love. We're loving. But whenever we start thinking, God, you've asked too much, all we have to do is go to the cross and be reminded what he's done for us. He can't ask too much of us. He could ask us to die, and that's not too much, beloved. Look at what Christ has done on the cross you mean? Let our hearts soak in that. I'm not just trying to use that as an example right now. I want us to soak in that and come to grips that we need that, beloved. Because if that's not the fuel for our love for each other, then we, our definition of love can become off. And if that's not the fuel for our service, then our service is not going to amount to God being glorified. And so have you tasted of the love of God for you? Do you drink of it? Is it encouraging to you? Does it bring you joy, encouragement? Does it, does it just feed our souls if it does? then we'll know how to go out there and love. But if it doesn't, we might discover that we're serving in the church for a lot of wrong reasons. Third characteristic. So humility, first characteristic, second love. Third is repentance or a reminder of weakness and failure, depending on how we want to look at it. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, Jesus asked Peter a third time if he loves him, and this time it really hit people. We don't know if Peter knew where Jesus was going after the first question or the second question. We don't know if Peter thought, maybe he's going to restore me. Maybe he's going to address me or confront me because Jesus has already appeared and he hasn't done it yet. He's appeared to Peter and the disciples before. Well, by the time Jesus gets to the third question, The penny drops, the light switch clicks on, and Peter gets it. He's grieved now. Why? Because he asked him a third time, what's going on? Peter made the connection between I denied the Lord three times, and now he's asking me three times if I love him. Peter just made the connection, and now he is sorrowful. He was sorrowful after he denied Jesus when he heard the rooster crow, and now he's sorrowful again when Jesus reminds him of his Weakness. Now, Jesus could have glossed over the incident, made nothing of it. He could have left Peter serve after his denial, let the other disciples think what they might of Peter as they served alongside him. He could have said, it's no big deal, don't you concern yourself with it. But instead, Jesus does two things simultaneously, which is difficult for us often to wrap our minds around. He both deals with Peter's denial as something significant, and he restores Peter. It is so often the case that in the Christian church, we we don't necessarily get this when it comes to, hey, equipping people to serve. If somebody blows it, we say, you are for the rest of your life disqualified from ever being a Sunday school teacher or from ever doing uh, counseling or from ever being helpful to somebody and making meals and bringing them over. You've just entirely discredited yourself. Or on the flip side, we say, hey, don't worry about it, no big deal. You just keep doing what you're doing. But what does Jesus do with Peter? No, Peter was a big deal. But I want you to go feed my sheep. It's both together. Tremendous grace, tremendous love, beloved. And if you're one of the other disciples standing right there, you would have no doubts about serving alongside would you? Oh, the Lord restored him. He told Peter, "Sheep, tend his lambs. Okay, Peter's fully in with this. It was a public restoration for all to see so that neither Peter nor the other disciples would have to doubt. It has often been said that the mark of maturity is not how someone deals with success, rather the mark of maturity is how someone deals with failure. It's easy, beloved, to wallow in self-pity. It's easy to deny we failed at all. It's easy to revise our failures and put them on the scale of, oh, I've done so much good, and my failure isn't that big of a deal. But Jesus comes into our lives like he did into Peter's life, and he says, no, it's a big deal but I want you to continue to serve. I want you to repent. I want you to carry that with you, the fact that you blew it. And you know where forgiveness is found. It's found in me. And then I want you to keep serving, but don't forget how weak you are. And so Jesus comes to remind Peter, indeed, how weak he is. And Peter was even emotionally, could argue, hit with it. There are a lot of us as believers in the church, myself included, who would be far more useful in serving Christ if we would actually deal with our sin, own our weakness, have ongoing repentance, than to wallow in self-pity over it. Oh, I can't believe I did that. Why not? We're sinners yet. Or to excuse it and say it's not that big of a deal. No, sin is a big deal before God. He does. He does we, we do need to repent of sin. We do need to own our sin. The failure of Peter's is available for all to see for all time, beloved. God put this in front of us for us to see. Yeah. How gracious is God? Peter flat out denied Jesus before a servant girl. And he said, look, you're forgiven. You're going to feed my sheep. You're going to go be an apostle. Wow. This is tremendous grace. Paul, 1 Timothy 1.15, never forgot. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Right before that, he says, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, opposing Christianity. Isn't that amazing? Paul didn't cover that up or brush that under the rug. Hey, let's, let's just forget about that part. No, here's who I was, and I still consider myself the chief of sinners. Galatians 6.1, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. What does that look like? Be aware of who we are and how weak we are. Peter, those others may have a problem, Lord, but not me all of a sudden Peter discovers he has a problem too. Okay, for the rest of my life, I'm going to walk through life fully aware, hopefully, if not fully more aware, that indeed I'm weak too. And I'm no better than all these others, Christians who are serving the Lord too. I'm just as capable of falling as anyone whose names made headlines, but for the grace of God. And so in light of that weakness, in light of the failures I've done, in light of seeing clearly now, how weak I am and how much I need the Lord's strength and the Holy Spirit to work in me. I'm going to serve in the church humbly and serve in the church with awareness of my sin. Fourth characteristic, a clear conscience. Humility, love, an awareness of our weakness, and then a clear conscience. Verse 15, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Verse 16, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 17, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Now notice Peter does not tell the Lord what's in his heart. Peter does not say, yes, Lord, I love you. He doesn't He doesn't say that. Peter, do you love me? A natural response would have been, yes, Lord, I love you. Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter understands Jesus knows everything. That's clicked in his mind. He knows Jesus is omniscient. He gets that. And so he's appealing to to the Lord's perfect knowledge of Peter's own heart. Now, Peter would not be able to say this unless he had a clear conscience that indeed he loved the Lord. Because you would not appeal to God to say, you know that I love you if you did not love him. Because you know that you can't fool him. And he, he already knows the truth. And so Peter with a clear conscience can say, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that. You see that in me. I'm at peace with that. You know it. I know I love you. And you know it as well. There is here in Peter, there is someone here with a clear conscience about their love for the Lord. He still falls. He's proven he sins. He'll continue to sin just like we will too. But he knows, yeah, I I know I love you, Lord. And I know that you know too. And so you know that I love you. I don't want I don't want to spend too much time on this but I don't want to underestimate this either the importance of a clear conscience. Yeah, I love the Lord. I'm going to go serve him. It's incredibly valuable, beloved. Hebrews 13:18, pray for us for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. Acts 24:16, Paul, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. 2 Corinthians 1:12, our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. Paul tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Peter can say, in all sincerity, Lord, I love you. You know that's the case. You you know what is going on in my heart. Invaluable, beloved, for serving in the church. Because we're going to fail, we're going to mess up, we're going to say the wrong thing or not say enough or do the wrong thing or not do enough. And, and we can become really, really despondent and despairing. I don't even know if I love the Lord. Yeah, I'd, maybe this isn't even true of me. Or no, Lord, I, I know that you love me. I messed up. So I'm just going to own my sin. And I'm going to seek forgiveness from other people, and especially from you. And then I'm going to continue to serve you two tasks for every church to prioritize. Those are characteristics that the Lord was instilling in Peter and us as we serve, and there are two tasks that every church actually needs to prioritize. Verse 15, feed my lambs. Verse 17, feed my sheep. And then right in the middle of verse 16, tend my sheep. Before we dive into those two words, tend and feed, I want to draw attention to Jesus saying, My lambs, my sheep, my sheep. Every believer belongs to Jesus. All service in the church, whether done in an official capacity by elders or in an unofficial capacity by all of us, is done unto those who belong to Jesus. It's done to believers who've been bought with the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. He owns them. He loves them. He cares for them. They're going to be with him in glory. We as sheep come in all different shapes, sizes, and maturities. Some of us are probably really annoying sheep. We bleed a lot, right? i n g. We're Bleeding sheep, complaining a lot. Some of us are wounded. Some of us are delightful, right? We're, and we're probably, maybe we go through different stages as we walk through the world. But But we all belong to Jesus. Every believer belongs to Jesus. And so it's good for us to keep in mind as we serve in the church, look, These people, indeed, they belong to the same church as I do, fair enough. Or maybe they belong to a different church, the people I'm serving. Or uh, maybe they belong to my family, maybe they don't belong to my family. Maybe they're my friends, maybe they're not, but they all belong to Jesus. And that needs to be our perspective. That's a helpful perspective as we serve in the church. So the first task I want to highlight here that Jesus highlights is the task of feeding. Feed my lambs, verse 15, feed my sheep. He gives that task to Peter. There are no modern-day apostles He's giving it to Peter by extension. He's giving it to the whole church. Remember, the apostles are part of the foundation of uh, Christ's kingdom, the foundation of the church. And so as he's tasking Peter with this, he's tasking the whole church with this as well. And the feeding here isn't, hey, just make sure that everybody's got plenty of eggs in their fridge and toast in the toaster and uh, sushi on their plate or whatever it is we're going to eat. Make sure that everybody has that. The feeding has to do with the feeding of the word of God, feeding our souls. And indeed, we care for people physically, but in this commission, Jesus is tasking with, you need to go feed the sheep the word of God. Now, this certainly speaks to pastors in the church who are to labor in the preaching of the word. It's certainly a work which churches need to prioritize as they call people, as they call pastors, whether they have one pastor or 40 of them, whether the church is 10 people or 10,000. Feeding people the word of God, is an essential for any church. And let me let me sort of drive this home. We have a lot of kids in here, which is wonderful. Love hearing them scream and uh, announce their presence as we worship the Lord. A lot of you in five or 10 years are going to be out of your parents' house and you're not going to be going to church just because my parents go there. You're going to have to think through where am I going to go to church? And sometimes it can be very tempting to say, hey, this church is fun. This church is entertaining. This church is wonderful for all the wrong reasons. And you'll go there and discover that if they don't feed you the word of God, your soul is going to shrivel and it may happen in a very slow way. You don't even notice it. You'll notice it five years down the road or 10 years down the road. This is not a plug telling you where you need to go to church. This is a plug to say, hey, think through. Is this a congregation, is this a church which loves the Word of God and they take seriously the task of feeding people the Word of God? Yes or no? If the answer is no, start seriously considering what is your choice to go there. Because we need the Word of God or we're going to be starving Christians. Does this church get Christ at all? Does this church understand the gospel at all? Are they ashamed to proclaim it? If yes all right, then, then I'm out. Or at least I'm going to feed somewhere else while I seek to try and change and reform and help. But that may be a fool's errand. So again, for those of us who are looking at going off on our own someday, think about it. Think through it clearly. Not, oh, I don't want to go to my parents' church anymore. Maybe that's the case. Maybe it isn't. Maybe you love your parents' church. Fair enough. But where am I going to go? I want to go to a church that takes seriously this command to feed uh, Jesus, sheep. But this is also a whole church work. Older women, Titus 2, are commanded to teach younger women in the faith. Sunday school teachers help. Parents, we have a duty to teach our children the word of God. Colossians 3:16. let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2:2. the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful people. I think it's a better translation. ESV says faithful men and ESV says faithful people who will also be able to teach others. Do you get that? We're all part of this, beloved. Like the church is a place where people love the word of God and we teach each other and we help each other out and we speak in this language and we're a blessing to each other that way. So without discounting anything regarding preaching or official teaching in the church, I want all of us to realize that we're all in this. This is this is what the church is about, feeding people the word of God. <laughs> beloved, I'm really thankful that this is the church which prizes that, loves it. And I see it all the time. People are like, oh yeah, someone so mentioned this Bible verse. It was a tremendous benefit. I'm like, awesome. That's <laughs> we're just feeding each other with this word. I need that same thing. We all need this together, beloved. We need our souls fed with the Bible. And I want to highlight the second task, and with this we'll close, but it might take five minutes. Tend, he says. Tend my sheep. Tend my lambs. The language here is shepherd. Literally, it's to to guard or to guide or to protect. Is the word for shepherd. Poimenics is what used to be called in seminary. It was the the class on shepherding. And again, elders are called to this in particular. 1 Peter 5, 1, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That's a, a task indeed for elders, an official task, a task every elder needs to be involved in. But this again is um, a church-wide activity, and I want to highlight that by reading some one another commands. And I want you to listen carefully to some one another commands strung together Yourself as I asked myself this same thing too as I was looking at this past week. What does this sound like we're called to be doing for each other? Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, Romans 12. Serve one another in love. Carry each other's burdens, Galatians 6. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Teach one another, admonish one another. Make your love increase, and overflow for each other, encourage each other, build each other up, encourage one another daily. Spur one another on to love and good deeds. Pray for each other. Everyone should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, 1 Peter 4.10. What does that sound like? It almost sounds like a family taking care of each other, doesn't it? Like a people who are actually commanded to be devoted to the spiritual well-being of each other. And it is easy, beloved, to say, hey, so-and-so is not doing well. I'm just going to tell somebody, and that's off my plate. I'm just going to let somebody else handle that. And indeed, pastors and elders all over the world should be caring for the flock. But can you imagine how much a church would suffer and how lacking a church's care would be if people left shepherding and caring for one another like we just described, like I just read, and spurring one another and praying for each other and using our gifts and building each other? Can you imagine how paltry a church life would be if we just said, we'll just leave that to those who have an official capacity as elders? Oh, the church would be way, it would suffer tremendously for that. And again, I'm really thankful. And I'm From the bottom of my heart, I am thankful that this church is a congregation that takes serious task to tend and shepherd each other. Not just as elders, we have that. We have elders that care. But as members, people understanding, hey, we do life together inside of a church. We care for one another. I care that they live a life of holiness. I care that they don't wallow in sin and be destroyed. I'll call them every day. I care that they make it to the finish line. I care that their marriage does well. I care that their children grow up to see parents who love them. I care for every single person, every single believer. I love them, and I want them to be doing well. And I tend to their well-being, even as they tend to mine. Now, I know this probably sounds like a total odd duck thing, Because here in America, in our churches, and all over the world, with the mega church movement, nothing wrong with big churches. But among people's mindsets, it is often the case, church life is, I show up to hear singing, either I sing or they perform. I show up to hear preaching, and then I go home. And I have six days and 23 hours to do whatever I want. Until I'll plug back into church life for an hour. Consumer mindset, selfish mindset, what's in it for me? Never getting to know other people, never being tended to, but also never tending to others. Never using gifts for the well-being of these believers that you worship with. Not saying, hey, how can I encourage these people? How can I help them toward the finish line? How can I be a blessing and a benefit to their faith and their relationship with the Lord, even as I need them to bless me, too, in my relationship? So again, I don't want to pick on those of you who are younger. <laughs> I was one once. But again, think about it. Is this a church that I want to be part of, which, which actually cares for my soul? Yes or no? Do they care that I make it to the finish line, or they just want more individuals in the seats and a bigger budget? Do they care if I know Jesus? Do they care if I'm part of the kingdom? Do they care if I'm growing? And Beloved, that's a work of the whole church. I hope we're encouraged by this. I hope that we delight to do this. It's one of the greatest, arguably the greatest privilege. Lord Jesus, we get to serve you by loving your people and tending to your people and helping your people all the way to the finish line. I didn't have an introduction. I don't have a conclusion, but let me just throw this out there. Love for Jesus, beloved, love for Jesus. That is ministry. If we're doing ministry and we don't love him, we should rethink it. doesn't mean stop doing it, let's just change why we're doing it. Love for Christ because he's loved us. Let's pray.